Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, Transformed. This series will look at people's encounters with Jesus and see how He transformed their lives forever. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here in the house. It's good to have those of you here online with us. We're grateful that you've joined us today for worship. You know, we have a God who changes things for the good. We have a God who transforms people's lives. And and we're in the middle of a series called Transformed. And in this series, we are looking at those people in the Bible who have been transformed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But we're also asking some of you to share your stories about how God has transformed. And I would say this to you. If if you would like to share that story, you can go to our website. Go to the section that says Next Steps and click on that. And then it'll uh, give a tab to you where you can see where it says Tell Your Story. Click on that. And I would love to hear from you. Hear how Jesus has transformed your life. Now, today I've asked Matt Deardorff if he would come and share with us. So give Matt a great big Valley Brook welcome. Good morning, church. I need to apologize up front that I have a lot of unnecessary hand movements while I uh, talk, as well as I've probably had too much coffee this morning. So bear with me. But this is uh, my story of how Jesus has transformed me. Uh, The testimony of me is standard, normal, whatever you want to call it. I I grew up in a uh, a Christian church or a a Christian family going to church every Sunday morning, Wednesday night youth groups, and all the church events. Um, I don't really know when I got saved. Uh, It it was such a routine in our family uh, that it it wasn't this, this moment in my life, but it was probably when I was 11 years old. That's when I got baptized. So probably just before that is when I had uh, the mental capacity to understand uh, what Jesus did for me on the cross. Uh, I went all through elementary, high school, going to church, but then college came around and I took a hard right and stepped away from God. Uh, all through college and even the, the first couple years of my after college years and my career in the Air Force, uh, I was away from God and I just felt this void, uh, this emptiness, kind of like what Drew talked about last week, and this uh, knowing that I needed God. And I, I knew exactly what it was, this emptiness. And I had to have God back in my life. Um, so I talked with Meg, we were married at that point, uh, and we began going back to church uh, uh, with Meg. And it was a slow process. I wanted to make my faith my own. I felt like maybe my faith was my family's, and that's why I went uh, astray. So I wanted to make my faith my own. Uh, So it took some time. Uh, And Meg and I were reading through a book, and it referenced Proverbs 19.21, which is, many are the plans of man, but God's plans prevail. Uh, And that was the the sack of bricks for us uh, in our, our walk back to God. Uh, It was perfectly timed in our lives uh, at a point where we needed that reassurance. And I think that was the last part of my, well, not the last part, but a significant part of my life that I needed God to to tell me I needed to relinquish control. Uh, Being an Air Force officer, maybe, pilot, uh, 
husband and male, I, I had control issues. And I needed, to, I needed to relinquish that control to God, that he's got my career, he's got my family, he's got my life, uh, and I don't need to uh, have that control anymore. Uh, so that was the turning point in our lives, my life specifically, uh, that our faith started to accelerate and we started to grow. Ups and downs, of course, uh, but we, we haven't looked back from then. Um, the beauty of the story, though, the, the real good part of that story is God's love in this whole part. Uh, he loved me when I was in elementary school and high school. He even loved me when I was in college, and he still loves me now. Uh, and I look back at his love. It was unconditional, no limits, uh, even when I was in college. And I can look back and see specific points in my college years that he was loving me uh, and caring for me. Uh, and even extending the olive branch to come back to him, which I was oblivious, ignorant, or just stubborn not to, to take on. Um, but his love throughout this entire process, uh, I just can't comprehend. It doesn't make logical sense as a human being to have that much love. Uh, but I thank him each and every day. Uh, so that is how Jesus has transformed my life uh, and continues to love me and transform my life each and every day. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. We're grateful that you shared your story with us. And again, if somebody, if you feel led to share your story, I would love to hear it because it's important that we see that how Jesus transforms people's lives isn't just something that happened in Scripture. It happens now. It happens every day. And we need to open our hearts and our lives to his transformation. So, you know, as we've looked at this last couple of weeks, you know, we have looked at how Jesus has transformed people in Scripture who already believed in him. People who followed him. People who had had their lives touched by him. But, but can Jesus transform somebody's life who is hostile to Jesus? Can, can Jesus transform somebody's life who is not a believer in Jesus? Can, can, can Jesus transform somebody like an like a Adolf Hitler or a, or a Vladimir Putin or, or a terrorist? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the transformation of the life of a man that we call the Apostle Paul. And we first meet Paul when he goes by his given name from his parents, Saul, and uh, we catch up with him in, in the book of Acts for the very first time where he happens to have gathered where they are actually stoning to death one of the followers of Jesus, a man named Stephen. So let me just do a little bit of explanation about how we go from Saul to Paul. So um, when you read through the book of Acts, you, you meet Saul and uh, he goes by the name Saul, and, uh, but we learn some things about him when you read both uh, the book of Acts as well as the letters that he wrote. And he wrote uh, a significant part of the New Testament. We learn that he was born in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. We learn that he's a Roman citizen, and that's, that's important. So, you, you know, 
If you're born in a country today, you become a citizen of that country that you're born in. But that wasn't the case in the Roman Empire. You actually had to be born in Rome or be the child of a, a Roman man to be a Roman citizen. And so what we learn, he was born in Tarsus, which was been part of the Roman Empire, but it wasn't Rome. But obviously his father was a Roman citizen. And that comes in very handy if you read about Paul's life, Saul's life, uh, later in uh, the books of the Bible. But as a Roman, he was also Jewish, which is a little unique. But uh, as a Roman, he would have had three names, you know, much like we do today. Uh, you, many of you have three names. Maybe you have more, maybe you have less. But, but it's not unusual for people to have a first name, a middle name, and a last name. Uh, Paul... Uh, who he goes by eventually by as Paul, was probably more of a nickname. It probably was in the Greek, Paulus, uh, instead of just Paul. That's our anglicized version of it. But remember, he was Jewish. And his parents probably gave him the nickname Paul because it sounded like a lot like Saul, or Paulos sounded like Salos, which was uh, the way they spelled Saul in, in Hebrew. And so that is where we get that. And there's a place in the book of Acts where we see him transition from being called Saul to being called Paul. And I'll tell you about this even though I'm not going to speak about it. That's because he realized that God had called him to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And the Gentile culture was predominantly Greek-oriented. And so it would have made sense to use his Greek nickname rather than his given Hebrew name. But here's what I want to focus on, on the transformation of Saul. What kind of person was he? What kind of person was Saul before he met Jesus? Well, Saul was a religious zealot. Uh, listen to how he describes himself in the letter that he writes to the church in Philippi. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I mean, those sentences contain Saul's bragging rights based on his status, his credentials, his accomplishments. And, you know, even this, when he writes this, he's a Christian, but you can just sort of feel it dripping with pride and, and zeal. So let's unpack those things that he said about his before Christ life as Saul, the zealot religious person. So Saul was circumcised according to the strict teaching of the Jewish law. He points out that his parents kept, the, kept God's commandments. And they circumcised him exactly as it says in Scripture at, on, when he was eight days old. We find that teaching in the book of Genesis and the book of Leviticus. Now, uh, one commentary says this. As spiritual purity was demanded of the chosen people of God circumcision became the external sign of the covenant between God and his people. It secured to the one subjected to, uh, it secured to the one subjected to all the rights of the covenant, participation in the material and the spiritual benefits, while on the other hand, it would mean that he was bound to fulfill the covenant obligations of the law. So, 
It, it came with some responsibility, but that was okay for Saul. Second, we read that Saul was born into the Israelite tribe of Benjamin. That means he had an enviable ancestry amongst all of the tribes of Israel. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that remained faithful and loyal to King David's throne. The first king of Israel also came from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Saul, and it's possible that Saul's parents named him after King Saul, being a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Third, Saul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, it, it obviously implies that his ancestry was purely Jewish, which explains the fact how a Roman citizen existed as a Jew within that culture because it would have been anti-Semitic, but he still lived as a, a fully devoted member of Judaism. It also may reference the zeal that he had to strictly, and I mean to the letter, follow the law that God had given Israel. Now, fourth, he said that when it comes to following the Jewish law, he was a Pharisee. Now, uh, scholars point out that the, the word Pharisee comes from a word that means uh, to be set apart, to be separated. And, and so the Pharisees actually saw that about themselves. They actually saw that they were better than the ordinary Jewish person. And, and so a little bit of history about Pharisees. Um, Pharisees were not priests. They, they were laymen. Uh, they were uh, from the middle class. They were primarily businessmen, merchants, tradesmen. But they were exacting interpreters of the Old Testament law. And they were strongly committed to strict adherence to it. They actually had control over the synagogues. And they exercised great control over the general population about following the laws of Moses. They built up a body of oral tradition uh, that was designed to adapt the ancient precepts of the written law to the changing situations of the modern days that they were in. And, and thus, they became the safeguarders of their principles against making sure that no one dismissed them or said they were obsolete or impractical. Uh, the Pharisees were scrupulous when it came to observing the law. You may remember in the Gospels, Jesus even points out that the Pharisees actually gave God a tenth, a tithe of their herb gardens. I mean, you know, they went not just from major crops, but all the way down to the little garden that you would have to season your food. They gave a tenth of that to God. And they were very concerned with making sure that they could see that people were following the law. What does that mean? That means they were really concerned about the externals, the way it looked to be a strict adherence of the Jewish law. They weren't so concerned about the internals, the heart stuff, but they wanted to make sure that you were living your life according to the law, and that's the way they did it. So you can see the, the, that they were legalist when it, when it came down to it. Now, fifth, Saul talks about his zeal for persecuting the church. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but let's talk about the sixth thing he says. He talks about being faultless in keeping the laws of Judaism. Now, 
I, I hope you just capture the fact that he was candid about sharing the arrogance that he had about being perfect and being faultless, uh, keeping those external laws, even though we all know that no one can be perfect. But that, that gives you the idea that uh, Saul was a religious zealot to the, to the point where uh, you know, the way he lived in front of everybody was probably not the way he lived behind closed doors. He was probably a hypocrite. He, he demanded perfection in the keeping of the law, and he punished people who fell short of what his idea was of perfection, but he never saw his own imperfection. Now, unfortunately, this zeal and this pride and this arrogance turned Saul into a, a persecutor, even a, a terroristic persecutor of people who did not follow the Jewish law the way he did. So let's talk about that. Saul, the, the terroristic persecutor. You know, the way others describe Saul in the book of Acts is, is not the way that he described himself or he saw himself. They, they didn't match up. But after he had stood by and watched and approved of the martyrdom of Stephen, the disciple of Jesus, it says this in the book of Acts. Immediately, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Now, we can assume that Saul encouraged this persecution because actually what we read in the next verse tells us that he did. It says, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So, uh, New Testament scholar Frederick Bruce uh, points out that when Saul met followers of Jesus, people who publicly affirmed that the crucified Jesus had, was the chosen one of God, the Messiah, that when he saw that, he knew that his course of life was clear, that they were guilty of blasphemy and that they should be dealt with accordingly. Uh, no heed could be paid to them because they supported the affirmation that the claim that Jesus had come back to life and appeared to them. And so he saw them in making that claim that they were deceivers or at least self-deceived. And none of their arguments would match anything that could be in Saul's mind about the Messiah because the Messiah, the chosen one of God, could never be a crucified Messiah. That argument couldn't stand. He couldn't conceive of that, that the elect one, the chosen one of God, could be crucified. And so, uh, that just was a conflict in his mind and, and it, it became like a, a malignant cancer in his body as he got angrier and angrier and angrier at the followers of Jesus who themselves were doing whatever it took even at their own peril to tell people about how to have eternal life. So what did Saul do? Well, in the book of Acts again we read this in, in chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back 
to Jerusalem in chains. So followers of Jesus Christ were, were known as following the way, the way of Jesus. And so he was going to go even outside of the country of Israel. He was going to go into Syria to Damascus to the synagogues and arrest people who were followers of Jesus. Now, why was that important to him? That was important to him for, because he understood something. Damascus was one of those crossroads of the Middle East. And if followers of Jesus moved into Damascus and started spreading the news of Jesus and people came to faith in him and left Judaism, then because it was a major trade route where people and merchants would come, then the influence of Jesus would spread around the known world. And so, interestingly, in historical records, we discover that Israel had extradition rights with countries around them where they could actually go and capture people and bring them back to persecute them, to prosecute them in Israel. And so that's what Saul does. He, he goes to the chief priest in Israel, in Jerusalem. He says, I, would you give me letters with your authority to go to Damascus and to the synagogues and interrogate people and find out if there's any followers of Jesus, any followers of the way, so that I can arrest them, put them in chains and bring them back here. In Saul's mind, he was preserving the purity of his Jewish faith. He, he was doing whatever it took to protect what he believed and what he had grown up in. And so he did that. He got those letters and he, he went there. And, and, you know, and, and it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman, he would arrest them. So uh, just thinking about this scripture, let's look at it. We see Saul's legalistic religious zeal has crossed over to a, a new level of anger and hate and violence where he's going to drag people out of their homes. He's going to arrest people in different countries and, and chain them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, er, earlier we read in his own words that, that Saul admitted to persecuting the church. Uh, when he wrote to the church in Galatia, he, he even shows even more how he did it. He said this, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Extremely zealous is an understatement, I think. He was willing to kill people. He wanted to destroy the church. He wanted to, to take anybody that uh, said they believed that Jesus was the chosen one, the Messiah that Judaism had looked for and make them recant. And if they wouldn't, death wasn't out of the question for them. So he heads off to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, this is where we learn that Jesus can transform people that don't believe in him and, and, and people who are terrorists. We see that Saul is transformed from being a terrorist to being a, a grace-filled preacher of Jesus. So, in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, 
We read, Saul has a dramatic encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. As Saul is traveling to Damascus, the Bible says that there was a sudden flash of light from heaven and it shone on Saul and he fell down. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul didn't know where that came from, but he responded and asked who was speaking to him. And, and this is what he heard. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So he has this dramatic experience traveling to Damascus with his companions to go arrest followers of Jesus. And it's interesting. Scriptures tell us that the companions hear the voice, they see the light, they experience the entire thing, and they're speechless. But what happened to Saul didn't happen to them. When Saul stands up, he discovers that that light has blinded him. He can't see. He is completely blind. And so his companions take him by the hand and they lead him to the house that they had prearranged to stay in in Damascus. And so he's there and he's blind. And scripture tells us that after this encounter with Jesus, Saul didn't eat or drink anything for three days. What's that about? Well, I believe this very religious man who had had his world rocked because the, the, the crucified chosen one that the way, the followers of the way talked about that he didn't believe was real or existed has now come and spoken to him and he's, he's experienced him. He's heard him. And I believe he's fasting and he's praying because a little bit further in that section of chapter 9, it actually says he was praying. So I believe for three days... He's fasting and praying, trying to, to reckon what his life has been about and what he's just experienced. And, and what does this mean for me, for the faith I grew up in and I was so zealous for, and for the awful way that I've been living, I'm thinking he's saying to himself. His world has just turned upside down. I appreciate, again, how Frederick Bruce puts it. He says, with no conscious preparation, Saul found himself instantaneously compelled by what he saw and heard to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, was alive. After his passion vindicated and exalted by God and was now, Jesus was conscripting, conscripting him into his service. For Saul, there could be no resistance to this compulsion which was driving him in the opposite direction in which he had been pursuing. He capitulated to the command, Bruce writes, uh, of his new master. He became a conscript that he might be from that point on fully devoted and a lifelong servant of Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Now, in chapter 9, what we read is unknown to Saul. The Lord has spoken to a, another follower of Jesus, a, a Christ follower whose name is Ananias, who also lived in uh, Damascus. And, and the Lord came to him and said, listen, I want you to go see Saul of Tarsus. He's in town and he's praying and he needs you to come and pray over him and heal him. Well, 
word had gotten out amongst the believers in Damascus, and Ananias knows that Saul came to Damascus for one reason and one reason only, to arrest people and take them back to Jerusalem. So he, he says to the Lord, he says, uh, I don't want to do that. But the Lord is emphatic. He says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. God has chosen Saul to be his instrument to take the good news of Jesus out beyond its Jewish roots. So Ananias goes and he finds Saul and he prays for him and he says this, his brother Saul, he already sees him as a follower of Jesus Christ. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does that tell us? That tells us right there that Saul's blindness was healed and that he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. He has become transformed by Jesus. He's so transformed, he wants to be baptized. And so he's baptized right away and he actually begins to preach in Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and so Ananias and the other believers who Saul was staying with actually took him around to the synagogues in Damascus. And we read that he didn't just say nice things about Jesus. It says he, he preached with power. He is a transformed person. He's no longer a terrorist. He's a follower of Jesus. He's a preacher of the good news. In fact, he, he preaches with so much power, they, they want to get rid of him. They threaten to kill him. And so uh, he leaves. He goes back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he goes and he meets with the apostles, the original disciples. And soon after, he's preaching in Jerusalem. And the apostles found his transformation so credible, they did allow him to preach to other people and even debate with non-believers. He is a transformed man. So, can Jesus transform a, a hate-filled non-believer into a follower of Jesus? Yes. Can Jesus transform a, a legalistic terrorist of Christians into a grace-filled preacher of the gospel of Christ? Yes, he can. Saul's conversion came when he encountered the living Christ, and his transformation came when Jesus filled him with the Holy Spirit. So maybe you know somebody who is hostile to the news about Jesus Christ. Somebody who's just angry or mean or uh, puts down the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and believing in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're skeptical yourself of Jesus. Well, look, we know from this and from the testimony of brothers and sisters over the past weeks, that Jesus can transform anybody's life. And we need to be praying for that. You know, if you know somebody who's hostile to Jesus, you need to be praying. And look, I'll be the first to, to tell you, I know it's hard to pray for somebody day after day when you never see change. But that's what we're called to do. And it's the least we can do. I mean, it, it's, it, it takes 
so little time and so little effort. So you know somebody who needs to be transformed by Jesus and filled with his Holy Spirit. Maybe too, you need that transformation and you've just sort of held this whole thing at arm's distance and say, yeah, it sounds like fairy tales and fables. This is all I would ask you to do. Say this, Jesus, if it's real, give me a sign. Give me a sign. So right now, I want us to go into a time of prayer, and I'm going to start off the prayer, and if anybody wants to put their faith and trust in Jesus, I'm going to invite you to do that, but then I'm going to move into a silent prayer that will allow you to pray for that person, to begin that prayer today, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but we're going to pray here first. So if you would, in the room and online, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we see that you can transform anyone through Jesus Christ. You can transform them and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with anybody right now who's been hostile to you. If that represents you, just say, Jesus, and you want to tell them you believe in him, just say, Jesus, I do believe in you. I accept your forgiveness for my sins. I believe that you died and you rose again from the dead. Tell him that. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And ask him to help you live for him every day. Now each of us has somebody in our lives, in our, our circle of influence that we know needs Jesus, but they're resistant, hostile to him. So in this moment of silence, will you just lift them up and, and ask God to transform them to a follower of Jesus in this silent time. Lord, we lift up all of these individuals' names to you and we ask that you would be with them and, and transform them by the power of your spirit in your name amen thank you for listening to our podcast it is our sincere hope that it has blessed you for more information visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc